The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, turn, if you will, in your scriptures to Exodus chapter 40. Tonight we complete our journey through this marvelous book, Exodus chapter 40, and you can see that the sermon is entitled, The Glory of God in the Midst of His People. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word, Exodus chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of testimony, And you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest." You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil and the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand into the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle, and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and offered on it burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, we do plead with you now, minister unto us, your people. Put words in my mouth. And give us ears to hear what your spirit has to say. And may your glory fill this place. And may your glory fill our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to the end of Exodus. And perhaps I I think there's no more fitting end to the book of Exodus than the ending we've just read. Of course there isn't, because God gave us that ending. But think on it, that the narrative of Exodus, God delivering his people out of Egypt, God constituting his people as a nation, even before they enter the land, then there's all the legislation about tabernacle being built, and now God comes down from heaven and dwells in the midst of his people. His glory is made manifest in the tabernacle, in the midst of his people. The dwelling place of God is with men. That's the principle that we learn from Exodus 40. That's the principle that's really elucidated from Genesis 1, especially then Genesis 3, all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. The dwelling place of God is with men. He is our God and we are his people. This was momentous for the people of Israel. When the glory cloud descended upon the temple and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, rather. Yet, as momentous as it was, we must look beyond the moment. We must look beyond the moment because the dwelling place of God with his people is even more clearly seen in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the culmination of this principle is not even at the first coming of our Savior, but it's at the second coming and beyond the new heavens and the new earth where God will indeed dwell with his people forever. 
So we look beyond the moment. We look beyond the tabernacle to the true tabernacle, the eternal tabernacle, Jesus Christ himself. And we think on this, friends, is this not the case for us? The dwelling place of God with men is not this one of our greatest comforts? Is not this one of the most great assurances we could ever have to our faith that God has removed the barrier that existed between us and him so that he, a holy God, might dwell with us, we who are natively unholy, and that we might dwell with him, not just now, but for all eternity. Here in the tabernacle, we ultimately see Christ, and we see how we, as sinners, can dwell in the midst, or we can dwell in the presence, the eternal presence of a holy God. And we're going to see that principle, the dwelling place of God with men, the holy God with unholy people, really developed in two ways. In a sense, briefly, in the first 33 verses, we witness the tabernacle being erected by Moses. That's where it's put together for the first time completely. But perhaps more importantly for us is from verse 34 to the end of the chapter, where we see the tabernacle inhabited by the glory of God. So we have the erection of the tabernacle, and then we have the indwelling of the tabernacle by God. All to the point that reminds us and reveals to us, God is here this night. God dwells with his people. And he's promised his people he will never leave us or forsake us. He is with us now. He is with us eternally because he is our God and we are his people. But first, the tabernacle is put together. 33 verses, the first uh, eight verses, instructions on the tabernacle being put together. Verses 9 to 15 on the anointing and uh, making holy of all those things that go into the tabernacle. And then verses 16 to verse 33, the record that as God commanded Moses, so he did. That's essentially what goes on in these verses. Notice the first thing we see about the instructions in the building of the tabernacle. Notice the timing. The timing. On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The first day of the first month. The tabernacle is put together for the first time at the beginning of the new year for the Israelites. Which means it's been a year since God brought them out of Egypt, because that's when their calendar was rearranged to mark the point of redemption. It's been a year since they were brought out of Egypt, and it's been nine months since, sorry, three months since they were at Sinai. And now, at this new time, the new time of the year, they build the tabernacle and the Lord descends on it in all his glory. Imagine that. At the beginning of the new year, every year, every new year for the Israelites, not just a remembrance of their deliverance from Egypt, but on the the anniversary of that, the remembrance of God dwelling in the midst of his people. What a remembrance at the start of a new year that was for them. And that new era, that new presence, that worship, we see very clearly is to be done according to the design of God. 
The tabernacle is to be erected according to the command of God. Verses 1 to 8 give us details of this. Verse 3, God commands that the tabernacle, the, sorry, the ark is brought in. Verse 4, the table and lampstand. Verse 5, the golden altar of incense, and so on. And as God commanded, we read in verse 16 onwards, so Moses did. Verse 16, this Moses did. According to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. We read that, I think, eight times in verses 16 to verse 33. Uh, According to all that the Lord commanded, so he did. Moses obeyed the Lord to the letter. The tabernacle was neither designed nor put together according to Moses' imagination, how he felt God should be approached or put together in a way which made him feel comfortable. It's not by human imagination, not by human design. As the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. We notice also in verse 9, verse 9 through to 15, that there's a sanctifying of the tabernacle and all its paraphernalia, furniture, and officers. There's a sanctifying of it through anointing. Look at verse 9. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become Holy. Those ideas are repeated frequently through verses 9 to 15. An anointing unto holiness. An anointing unto service. To be set apart. To be devoted. Not for any other use. Not for any other use. Were all the items of the tabernacle to be used. Only for the worship of God. They were anointed to that very end. Aaron and his sons were also anointed, sanctified, set apart for that very end. But in addition to that, we read that not only was Aaron anointed with his sons, he was washed. Verse 12, then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put Aaron, put on Aaron the holy garments. Anointed set apart for service, and washed. Perhaps we could ask ourselves, taking a very high view of this text, why all this emphasis upon exactness, God's design, so Moses did, why all this emphasis upon anointing, and why all the emphasis upon cleansing? Well, we can ask a simple question. How can the holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? That's what the tabernacle is. It's the dwelling place of the holy God, perfectly holy, in the midst of an unholy people. We'll find out later as Israel goes into the promised land, the tribes are literally encamped around the tabernacle. God dwelt in their midst, in the middle of them. How can that happen? Firstly, we think we can answer that by the design of the tabernacle. 
the very design of the tabernacle. As Pastor Rockin and Pastor Azell have preached in recent weeks and perhaps months, the design of the tabernacle is to this very end, that the holy God should dwell in the midst of an unholy people. Its very design is for that purpose. And to change the design or the construction of the tabernacle, even in the slightest fashion, would annul God's mechanism by which he would dwell in the midst of his people. To change the design of the tabernacle or its construction would be for Israel to say, we can approach God in our own merits, according to our own righteousness, our own holiness, according to our own imaginations. Well, we know what happens when people do that. Nadab and Abihu are killed by God for precisely this reason, approaching him in a way he did not dictate. But it's not just design, is it? We've seen the details of the design elsewhere. There's the anointing. The anointing of oil is symbolic, that these items now become holy. And holiness means two things. It means sanctified or set apart and devoted to a particular use. Devoted to the use of God. Everything in the tabernacle was set apart. It was never to be used for common purpose. Even Aaron and his sons were anointed. They were to be set apart. But they were also washed It's not just design, Uh, it's not just anointing, it's washing, cleansing. Cleansing from what? Cleansing from sin. It reminded the children of Israel that even those who would enter the tabernacle and the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies, even they needed cleansing from sin. To enter God's holy presence requires a cleansing. The intermediaries of the old covenant dare not approach, that's the priests, dare not approach God carelessly or according to their own imagination, but all according to the plan, design, and revelation of God. In other words, Israel was to approach God on God's terms, not their own. To approach God on God's terms, not their own. Friends, we know as we read through scripture, the tabernacle, it's, it's a wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, we've seen this many times over. Uh, the, the different aspects of the tabernacle and so on point to a, an aspect of the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about this. As far as we're aware, and I think we've got good grounds to say this, the tabernacle was the only place where God dwelt with people on the whole of the earth at this time. The tabernacle was the only place where God dwelt with his people. The tabernacle was the exclusive presence of God. The tabernacle was the exclusive place where salvation and redemption were enacted through sacrifices It's a picture, is it it not, of the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he alone is the saviour of his people. As is said in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They're talking about Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which it is possible that a human being might be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. There is one saviour, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, plain and simple. No other way. The tabernacle reminds us of the exclusivity of Christ. But also consider the cleansing and anointing of, of the tabernacle and its officers. Is it not interesting that Moses was to anoint these things? Moses was to set apart these things. The officers were to be anointed. They were cleansed and set apart by external means. Someone did something to them by the command of God. They were anointed. They were washed. All of them required an external cleansing or anointing because none of them were inherently righteous or inherently holy. Not so with Jesus. None of them were inherently righteous or holy. He is inherently righteous and holy. Indwelt by the Spirit from the day of his birth, he lived a life of perfect holiness, a life of perfect righteousness. Anointed by the Spirit at his baptism in order that he might conduct his ministry, this is the one who is inherently holy, inherently righteous, Not just by the fact that he's God, but by the fact that he lived a perfect life. No sin in him whatsoever. That's a staggering statement. No sin. Not a single thought, let alone word or action. A mind of perfect righteousness. A life of perfect holiness, which makes it all the more staggering What he allowed to happen to himself, is it not? Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He knew no sin. The perfect tabernacle, the perfect dwelling place of God. The one with a perfect record of righteousness and holiness. He knew no sin. God made him to be sin. That's a staggering statement. God made him to be sin. And that verb be in Greek means to become sin. He becomes the embodiment of the sins of his people when dying on the cross. We can turn the page again in 2 Corinthians to chapter 8 and verse 9 where we read this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. I mean, rich without our comprehension, wealth beyond our imagination. And I don't mean wealth of money, though he has that as well. Wealth of glory. Wealth of perfection. Yet for our sake, for your sake, dear Christian, Scripture says he became poor. He was made to be sin so that you might have no sin. 
so that you might be the righteousness of God, so that by his poverty you might become rich. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, here written in the tabernacle, a prefiguring, a shadow of the one who is to come, the one who dwelt among us in perfect righteousness and perfect holiness, became poor in sin, not his own, but ours. That, friends, our sins might be removed. Friends, do you hear that? Your sin, my sin, the list of our sins we cannot name or number. And all the sins of all his people from every country in every age laid upon him at the cross. So that those sins in the instant of his death were snuffed out. Gone. As scripture says, we've been washed so that we're whiter than snow. And we've been granted a righteousness, not our own, but that comes from Christ so that we might be the righteousness of God. Friends, do you hear the extent of the gospel for you, for me? The tabernacle testifies to all this reality it testifies ultimately to christ wrought salvation in which the glory of god is manifest the glory of god is manifest you see friends jesus doesn't just save us from our sins he does that though jesus doesn't just give us righteousness he does that as well But he brings us into the eternal family of God. So that tonight, dear Christian, you have all the rights and privileges of children of the everlasting God. An eternal family of peace and bliss forever is yours and mine. We see all this in the building of the tabernacle. Perhaps we see it even more when the glory of the Lord descends down upon the tabernacle and inhabits the tabernacle. Yes, we see the the building, the erection of the tabernacle testifying to all these good things, but more so when we see God himself, as it were, come down from heaven and dwell there in the midst of his people. Verse 34, our second consideration tonight, the tabernacle inhabited by the glory of God. Look at verse 34. Then... Notice that after Moses had done everything that God said he would do, not until then, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Imagine being there to see it. Imagine being there to see it. The cloud that perhaps was up in the sky or the pillar of of fire by night that was there on Sinai also, the presence of God, both cloud and fire, comes down, as it were, off the mountain and dwells on and in the tent of meeting. Staggering thought, staggering sight. The cloud 
covered the tent. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Commentators say that this glory filling the tabernacle meant that the tabernacle was filled with unapproachable light. The glory of God. Now in the midst of the people of Israel. To go wherever the people went. In fact, not to go, but to direct and to lead that they should follow the cloud. The effect of this, this glory of God, verse 35, is that Moses is not able to enter the tent of meeting. Why? Because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Friends, this is massively significant for us. Moses cannot enter the tabernacle. This is the one who had seen the back of God, as it were, who had seen the glory of God in the mountain. In Numbers, we learn that the Lord says he spoke to Moses face to face. Yet for a time, he may not enter the presence of God. Think on that. The mediator of the old covenant, Moses, was not able to enter the presence of God. What greater contrast could there be between Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus dwells in the Holy of Holies now. He is there. Where Moses could not go, Christ is there. In fact, Christ, as it were, is the Holy of Holies. That's why there's no tabernacle or temple in the new heavens and the new earth. Because God Almighty and the Lamb are the tabernacle and temple. What greater contrast could there be between us and Moses? Friends, the innermost part of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies or Most Holy Place. Only the high priest could enter that once a year on the Day of Atonement. But Moses can't even get to the outer courts of the tabernacle now. And yet here we are in the Holy of Holies. I know you're tired. I know it's the end of a long week. And I know you've got a week ahead of you with many trials and many responsibilities, many duties, no doubt. Moses couldn't get in there. And yet here we are tonight. In the Holy of Holies, in the very presence of God with Jesus Christ in our midst... And the spirit dwelling in us, corporately and individually. Friends, what a great contrast there is between the myriad of blessings in the old covenant and the wonders that are ours tonight. Yours, dear Christian. Is there any reason on the face of the earth, barring providential hindrances, that you wouldn't want to be in the Holy of Holies? Name one. Name one. This is the place to be. 5.30 on a Sunday night, 9.30 on a Sunday morning, where God and his people are. What a miracle by the blood of Christ that we can enter those doors and come into the presence of God. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people it's a paradox isn't it 
A paradox is not a contradiction, it's an apparent contradiction. How can that happen? How can a holy God be with us who are unholy? We need to understand, do we not, that left to ourselves, we cannot enter into the holy of holies. I mean, physically we can, but spiritually it's no blessing to us. But friends, we're in the hands of a merciful God who through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ has provided us a way. And yet this holy presence of God, which is inaccessible, is still in their midst. At a distance, but close to them, if we can say that, this holy presence of God served another purpose, not just to be in their midst, but the presence of God would direct them throughout the course of their journey from Sinai to promised land and beyond. Here we've seen how glory and holiness equals distance from the people, no entry into his presence at this point. But we also see how there's proximity and how there's relationship with the people of Israel and glory and holiness. Note the language of verse 36 and the language of verse 38 with respect to the presence of God. Verse 36, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. Verse 38, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Verse 36 starts with the words throughout all their journeys. Verse 38 concludes with the words throughout all their journeys. God was with them throughout all their journeys. That's the miracle of this. There was no exception to this rule. God was not suddenly going to disappear and go off on a journey or take a holiday and leave his people. God was with them throughout all their journeys. In other words, God was never going to leave them. He would later tell Joshua, as they're entering the promised land, the end of this narrative, as it were, as they're entering the promised land, be strong and courageous. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you shall go. And friends, this is the essence of the promise. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. Given to God's people throughout all of time. And I want you to hear this this evening, dear Christian. The promise of God's presence in your lives does not depend upon your present circumstances, but upon his promise. And upon his character. That is to say, no matter how good it's going for you or how bad it's going for you presently, that has no bearing on the promise of God. Throughout all their journeys, God was with them. Has not Jesus Christ himself said the same thing to us? I will never leave you or forsake you. It's the same promise with different words. The Lord your God is with you wherever you shall go. And yet we acknowledge, don't we, friends, there are times in our lives when we feel that perhaps God has let go of us. Perhaps God has deserted us. 
Our confession of faith even talks about those times where God doesn't actually desert us, but just removes his hand of blessing, removes his hand of protection. He's never let us go, but he allows, allows some trial to come into our lives, sometimes because of our own sin, but not always. Simply to prove and improve our faith, he might allow trials into our lives. But even in the midst of those trials, friends, God will never depart from us. We might be staring down the barrel of terrifying providence. We might be filled with despair at the circumstances of life. But God is with you. And if God is with you, God is for you. And if God is for you, who or what can be against you? Is that not the teaching of Scripture? Friends, just as it was impossible for God to desert them here, it's impossible for God to desert us also. Think on this. It's impossible for the Holy Spirit to forsake you and not indwell you. It's impossible for Jesus Christ to forget you. How could the Father who elected you in love forget you? How could he desert you? How could the Spirit who indwells you forsake you? How could Christ forget you, dear Christian? It's been said as Christ hung upon the cross, he knew the names of all those for whom he was dying. He knew their lives. He knew their characters. He knew their triumphs, their failures, their crashes in sin. And he still died for us. And he died out of love for his father and love for you. Will Christ ever forget you? I think not. No, the character... The actions, the works of the triune God are the guarantee of his presence with you now and forevermore. And with that presence of 36 and 38 comes direction, verse 37. Great direction. We read this, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. If the cloud left the tabernacle, then so did Israel follow the cloud. It directed them. It told them when they should leave, and it told them by what route they should go. That is to say, Israel's God, the Lord Yahweh, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, who would lead them into the promised land, would do so by this way, by telling them where to go. And telling them when to go. The Lord was their great and divine navigator. He would take them to the promised land. He would direct them by means of his presence of the cloud. And note this, if Israel was to flourish, they were to submit themselves to the direction of the Lord. If Israel was to flourish... They were to submit themselves to the direction of the Lord. Even down to the question, when shall we break camp? 
Which route shall we go into the promised land? And friends, I would say this, it's no great stretch of logic or theology to apply that very same principle to us. Just as we read in 36 and 38 that the Lord was with them and he remains with us, so we now read in 37 that he directed their ways and so too does he direct our ways. Now we don't have a pillar of cloud or fire telling us when to leave church tonight and which route we should go home. Friends, we got something far clearer than that, far greater than that. We've got the testimony of the whole of the word of God in the hands of the almighty spirit of truth. Think on that. We want direction. Here it is. We want direction. Ask and it shall be given to you by the spirit. You see, God's presence now is principally known spiritually, though there are many ways in which he protects us and keeps us physically as well absolutely the case who's to say how and in what ways god has protected us physically and we're not even aware of it but just think for a moment of the spiritual presence the direction of the word of god a lamp to our feet a light to our path the work of the spirit in our lives questions do we take this job or that job Do I move to this city or that city? Do I date this person or that person? Do I trust God in the middle of providence that presses? Can we discern between truth and half-truth? And so on and so forth. We say, just as Israel's path, the path to glory is by no means easy. But do we think God has saved us? just to let us fall, as it were, in the wilderness of this life? By no means. Just as he directed their paths, so too shall he direct our paths. If we walk by faith, by the knowledge of the word, we shall see that God is with us, that God is protecting us, that God is directing us. A perpetual presence unto the eternal promised land, heaven itself. Friends, the guarantee of all this, the guarantee of all this, what makes it abundantly real, abundantly clear, without any shadow of doubt, is a double fulfillment of all these principles in the life and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, especially as we see it in the new covenant ministry. There's the presence and glory and protection and direction in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The beautiful fulfillment of this tabernacle theology, the dwelling of God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, is Jesus Christ in his first coming, the grace of God towards us in the Savior. Fully evident in his teaching, in his life, death, resurrection, and glorification, all the goodness that God has for us is bound up with that one, Jesus Christ, who now dwells in the highest heaven. 
and Jesus and the Father have bequeathed to the church and to you individual Christians. He's bequeathed to you the Spirit, the eternal Spirit, the almighty Spirit, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Christ who is the express image of the triune God. Yes, we see this blessed fulfillment in his first coming. But friends, secondly, we'll see the fulfillment of these principles at his return, his second coming. What our Lord said in his earthly ministry, I go and I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, he said, you may be also. What wonder. You see, the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is the initial fulfillment of this tabernacle glory principle. But the ultimate fulfillment, of course, we know what it is, don't we? It's Revelation 22. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 22, 3, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. We'll be with God. We'll be with the Lord Jesus. And we'll sing and we'll see those eternal honors that rest on Jesus' head. We'll see our dear bridegroom's face. We'll see the glory, glory that dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. And there we shall be as we sing changed from glory into glory. That's what the tabernacle teaches us. Of God's eternal and holy presence in the midst of his people forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, how good you are. Blessed be your name from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, your name shall be praised. And we praise you now. We worship you and we adore you. 
We confess you to be the only true and living God. And we rejoice to be part of your church. We rejoice to be of the family of God. We rejoice to be part of Zion, the new Jerusalem. Work in us, Lord God, that faith which is pleasing unto you, which honors you, and gives you glory. And Lord, if there be any in our midst that know you not, we plead with you, have mercy upon them. Grant them the grace of repentance to turn to the Savior, that this blessed assurance and this wonderful reality might be theirs also. And broadcast this, Lord, through us and through others unto the ends of the earth that all may hear of your glory and all may hear of your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.